0: Chapter twenty A of the Everyday Life of Abraham Lincoln. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Everyday Life of Abraham Lincoln by Francis Fisher Brown Chapter twenty A Lincoln and McClellan The Peninsular Campaign of 1862 Impatience with McClellan's Delay Lincoln defends McClellan from unjust criticism some harrowing experiences. McClellan recalled from the peninsula, his troops given to General Pope, Pope's defeat at Manassas. President Lincoln's relations with no other person have been so much discussed as those with General McClellan. Volumes have been written on this subject, many heated and intemperate words have been uttered, and wrong conclusions reached. Whatever defects may have marked McClellan's qualities as a soldier, He must remain historically one of the most conspicuous figures of the war. He organized the largest and most important of the Union armies, and was its first commander in the field. He was one of the two out of the five commanders of the Army of the Potomac, before Grant, who led that army to victory, the other three having led it only to disastrous defeat. Great things were expected of him and when he failed to realize the extravagant expectations of those who thought the war should be ended within a year, he received equally extravagant condemnation. It is noticeable that this condemnation came chiefly from civilians, from politicians, from Congress, from the press—not the best judges of military affairs. His own army—the men who were with him on the battlefield and risked their lives and their cause under his leadership—never lost faith in him. Of all the commanders of the Army of the Potomac, he was the one most believed in by his troops. Even after his removal, at a grand review of the army by the President, after the Battle of Fredericksburg, it was not for the new commander Burnside, but for the old commander McClellan, that the troops gave their heartiest cheers. It is worth remembering also that the war was not ended until two and a half years after McClellan's retirement, and until trial after trial had been made and failure after failure had been met in the effort to find a successful leader for our armies. The initial task of organization, of creating a great army in the field, fell upon him—a task so well performed that General Meade, his first efficient successor, said, had there been no McClellan, there could have been no Grant, for the army organization made no essential improvements under any of his successors. And Grant, the last and finally victorious of these successors, who was at one time criticized as being as great a discouragement as McClellan, recorded in his memoirs the conviction, already quoted in these pages, that the conditions under which McClellan worked were fatal to success, and that he himself could not have succeeded in his place under those conditions. It is not in the province of the present narrative to enter into a consideration of the merits or demerits of McClellan as a soldier, but to treat of his personal relations with President Lincoln. Between the two men, notwithstanding many sharp differences of opinion and of policy, there seems to have been a feeling of warm personal friendship and sincere respect. Now that both have passed beyond the reach of earthly praise or blame, we may well honour their memory and credit each with having done the best he could to serve his country. McClellan was appointed to the command of the Union armies upon the retirement of the veteran-general Scott, in November of 1861. He had been but a captain in the regular army, but his high reputation and brilliant soldierly qualities had led to his being sent abroad to study the organization and movements of European armies, and this brought him into prominence as a military man. It was soon after McClellan took command that President Lincoln began giving close personal attention to the direction of military affairs. He formed a plan of operations against the Confederate army defending Richmond which differed entirely from the plan proposed by mcclellan the president's plan was in effect to repeat the bull run expedition by moving against the enemy in virginia at or near manassas mcclellan preferred a transference of the army to the region of the lower chesapeake thence moving up the peninsula by the shortest land route to richmond this was a movement it may be remarked which was finally carried out before richmond fell in eighteen sixty five The President discussed the relative merits of the two plans in the following frank and explicit letter to McClellan. Executive Mansion, Washington, D.C., February 3, 1862. MAJOR GENERAL McClellan My dear sir, you and I have distinct and different plans for a movement of the Army of the Potomac, yours to be done by the Chesapeake up the Rappahannock to Urbana, and across to the Terminus of the railroad on the york river mine to move directly to a point on the railroad southwest of manassas if you will give me satisfactory answers to the following questions i shall gladly yield my plan to yours first does your plan involve a greatly larger expenditure of time and money than mine second wherein is a victory more certain by your plan than mine third wherein is a victory more valuable by your plan than mine fourth in fact would it not be less valuable in this that it would break no great line of the enemy's communication while mine would fifth in case of a disaster would not a retreat be more difficult by your plan than mine yours truly abraham lincoln To this communication, McClellan made an elaborate reply, discussing the situation very fully, and answering the inquiries apparently to the satisfaction of the President, who consented to the plan submitted by McClellan, and concurred in by a council of his division commanders, by which the base of the Army of the Potomac should be transferred from Washington to the Lower Chesapeake. Yet Lincoln must have had misgivings in the matter, for some weeks later he wrote to McClellan you will do me the justice to remember i always insisted that going down the bay in search of a field instead of fighting at or near manassas was only shifting and not surmounting a difficulty that we would find the same enemy and the same or equal entrenchments at either place after the transfer of the army of the potomac to the peninsula there was great impatience at the delays in the expected advance on richmond the president shared this impatience and his dispatches to mcclellan took an urgent and imperative though always friendly tone april ninth he wrote your dispatches complaining that you are not properly sustained while they do not offend me do pain me very much i suppose the whole force which has gone forward for you is with you by this time and if so i think it is the precise time for you to strike a blow by delay the enemy will relatively gain upon you that is he will gain faster by fortifications and reinforcements than you can by reinforcements alone and once more let me tell you it is indispensable to you that you strike a blow i beg to assure you that i have never written to you or spoken to you in greater kindness of feeling than now nor with a fuller purpose to sustain you so far as in my most anxious judgment i consistently can but you must act." While Lincoln was thus imperative toward McClellan, he would not permit him to be unjustly criticized. Considerable ill-feeling having been developed between McClellan and Secretary Stanton, which was made worse by certain meddlesome persons in Washington, the President took occasion at a public meeting to express his views in these frank and manly words. There has been a very widespread attempt to have a quarrel between General McClellan and the Secretary of War. Now, I occupy a position that enables me to observe that these two gentlemen are not nearly so deep in the quarrel as some pretending to be their friends. General McClellan's attitude is such that, in the very selfishness of his nature, he cannot but wish to be successful, as I hope he will be, and the Secretary of War is in precisely the same situation. If the military commanders in the field cannot be successful, not only the Secretary of War, but myself, for the time being the master of them both, cannot but be failures. I know General McClellan wishes to be successful, and I know he does not wish it any more than the Secretary of War wishes it for him, and both of them together no more than I wish it. Sometimes we have a dispute about how many men General McClellan has had, and those who would disparage him say he has had a very large number and those who would disparage the Secretary of War insist that General McClellan has had a very small number. The basis for this is, there is always a wide difference, and on this occasion perhaps a wider one than usual, between the grand total on McClellan's rolls and the men actually fit for duty. And those who would disparage him talk of the grand total on paper, and those who would disparage the Secretary of War talk of those at present fit for duty. General McClellan has sometimes asked for things that the Secretary of War did not give him. General McClellan is not to blame for asking what he wanted and needed, and the Secretary of War is not to blame for not giving when he had none to give. The summer of 1862 was a sad one for the country, and peculiarly sad for Lincoln. The Army of the Potomac fought battle after battle often with temporary successes, but without apparent substantial results, while many thousands of our brave soldiers perished on the field or filled the hospitals from the fever swamps of the Chickahominy. The terrible realities of that dreadful summer, and their strain on Lincoln, are well shown in the following incident. Colonel Scott, of a New Hampshire regiment, had been ill, and his wife nursed him in the hospital. After his convalescence he received leave of absence and started for home but by a steamboat collision in Hampton Roads, his noble wife was drowned. Colonel Scott reached Washington, and learning a few days later of the recovery of his wife's body, he requested permission of the Secretary of War to return for it. A great battle was imminent, and the request was denied. Colonel Scott thereupon sought the President. It was Saturday evening, and Lincoln, worn with the cares and anxieties of the week, sat alone in his room coat thrown off and seemingly lost in thought, perhaps pondering the issue of the coming battle. Silently, he listened to Colonel Scott's sad story. Then, with an unusual irritation, which was probably a part of his excessive weariness, he exclaimed, "'Am I to have no rest? Is there no hour or spot when or where I may escape these constant calls?" Why do you follow me here with such business as this? Why do you not go to the War Office, where they have charge of all this matter of papers and transportation?" Colonel Scott told of Mr. Stanton's refusal, and the President continued, "'Then, probably, you ought not to go down the river. Mr. Stanton knows all about the necessities of the hour. He knows what rules are necessary, and rules are made to be enforced. It would be wrong for me to override his rules and decisions in cases of this kind. It might work disaster to important movements. And then, you ought to remember that I have other duties to attend to, heaven knows, enough for one man. And I can give no thought to questions of this kind. Why do you come here to appeal to my humanity? Don't you know that we are in the midst of war, that suffering and death press upon all of us? that works of humanity and affection which we would cheerfully perform in days of peace are all trampled upon and outlawed by war? That there is no room left for them? There is but one duty now—to fight. The only call of humanity now is to conquer peace through unrelenting warfare. War—and war alone—is the duty of all of us. Your wife might have trusted you to the care which the government has provided for its sick soldiers. At any rate. You must not vex me with your family troubles. Why, every family in the land is crushed with sorrow. But they must not each come to me for help. I have all the burden I can carry. Go to the War Department. Your business belongs there. If they cannot help you, then bear your burden, as we all must, until this war is over. Everything must yield to the paramount duty of finishing the war." Colonel Scott withdrew crushed and overwhelmed the next morning as he sat in his hotel pondering upon his troubles he heard a rap at his door and opening it found to his surprise the president standing before him grasping his hands impulsively and sympathetically lincoln broke out my dear colonel i was a brute last night i have no excuse for my conduct indeed i was weary to the last extent but i had no right to treat a man with rudeness who had offered his life for his country much more a man who came to me in great affliction i have had a regretful night and come now to beg your forgiveness he added that he had just seen secretary stanton and all the details were arranged for sending the colonel down the potomac and recovering the body then taking him in his carriage he drove to the steamer's wharf where again pressing his hand he wished him Godspeed on his sad errand Such were Lincoln's harrowing experiences, and thus did his noble and sympathetic nature assert itself over his momentary weakness and depression. In August of 1862 General McClellan was ordered to withdraw his army from the peninsula. "'With a heavy heart,' says McClellan, "'I relinquished the position gained at the cost of so much time and blood. Without being removed from his command, his troops were taken away from him and sent to join General Pope who had been placed in command of a considerable force in Virginia for the purpose of trying the president's favorite plan of an advance on Richmond by way of Manassas. Either from a confusion of orders or a lack of zeal in executing them, the Union forces failed to cooperate, and Pope's expected victory, Manassas, august thirtieth, proved a disastrous and humiliating defeat his army was beaten and driven back on washington in a rout little less disgraceful than that of bull run a year before this battle came to be known as the second bull run end of chapter 20 a recording by bill borst